by many or by a few. Then we saw it again last week when the Philistine army, when the Philistine army was drawn up for battle against Israel, and the champion, the giant, the behemoth named Goliath stepped forward, and he brought forth a challenge that no one had the courage to accept. It was a challenge. Um, it was a challenge of defiance of every man in the army of the living God. But in fact, it was a challenge to the living God Himself. And every man in the army was dismayed and much afraid. In other words, they were paralyzed by fear. This, this behemoth made this challenge, and no one had the courage to, to accept it. But a youth stepped forward and issued his own challenge. It was a greater challenge. It was a bolder challenge, the challenge of courage informed by faith. This youth had experienced the power of God moving on his behalf, and he would trust God to deliver him against all odds. And in each of these situations, this was not men trusting in their own abilities, but going forth and trusting that God would do all that he needed done. And so they stepped out. And, and the victory was won by courage. And in each case, the army of Israel was changed and gained courage to go forth and defeat the army. Here were two men who looked beyond their own limited abilities and placed their hope in the living God. And now we have these two men, Jonathan and David, and we find that they are bound together. And together they would face a new kind of enemy a surprising enemy, yet an enemy that neither one of them wanted. It was an enemy they wanted to change into a friend. And to complicate the situation even further, the enemy was Jonathan's father, and he was the king of Israel. And being the king of Israel means he had, he had all the abilities with him that that entailed. So in light of that situation, we're going to talk about, we have some questions to consider this morning, and you have those on your outline, um, that first we're going to talk about what caused the unlikely relationship between David and Jonathan. That seems pretty easy, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. Then we're going to question what caused the intensity of Saul's enmity toward David and then finally, the last thing that we're going to look at, and this covers chapter 20, is what happens when you're torn between faith and fear, love and enmity, covenant and bloodline. Okay, so did you love this passage, though? I mean, it was huge and overwhelming to try to get it all in one lesson, but I thought it was beautiful. It was full of hope. It was full of sacrifice. So this is where we're going to answer our first question, and that is, what happens when Don, David and Jonathan meet? Well, that part is easy to answer because what happens is love happens, devotion happens, covenant happens, and faith happens. But why? That's the question, why? It seems to come out of nowhere. As soon as he, David, had finished being interviewed by Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. What had transpired? What had caused this? What caused the, the soul of David to be knit to Jonathan? It wasn't age because Jonathan was most likely many years older than David. It wasn't background because Jonathan was the eldest son of the king of Israel, the heir apparent. David was the youngest of eight sons, and David was a shepherd. 
Jonathan lived a life of wealth and privilege. David spent his days in the field with sheep and slept under the stars. Jonathan had the finest of weapons when he went out to battle. David had five smooth stones and a slingshot. Everyone knew Jonathan. No one knew David until now. So what drew them together? What drew them together was something different. It was something much deeper than wealth or genealogy or stature or background. Jonathan's soul was knit to David. To be knit means to be woven together, to be of the same fabric, oneness and purpose and heart. And we have seen that. We haven't seen it in them together, but we have seen it in their hearts individually. We can understand what drew them together because David and Jonathan were courageous in faith. They were, and in their hearts, they were set upon God's glory and the good of the people. I don't know if Jonathan heard Saul being interviewed by David, but my guess is being if, if he heard Saul as he interviewed David. But my guess is if, if he did, that David's responses were all about the greatness of God and the honor of his name. My guess is that he gave God all the glory. And it says then in the passage, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. When Jonathan heard David's heart and saw David's heart, it sang into his own heart. One commentator writes this. He says, David embodied the things most precious to Jonathan's heart. These were the themes that stoked the fires of Jonathan's love. Remember, Jonathan lived in the presence of Saul's emptiness of heart, his growing madness, his self-absorption, his littleness of faith. And now all of a sudden, here stands a brother who stands in stark contrast, whose heart beats with the same passion, the same purpose as Jonathan's. So what happened? Jonathan made a covenant. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Because David and Jonathan were soulmates in heart. There are different kinds of covenant. Our our, um, study today said that this this covenant was a parity covenant, which means it was made between two equals. You can think about that for a little bit. That it, but it was not, it was made between two equals, and I I want you to understand that covenant is going to play a very very important part in the rest of our study of David. So um, be watching for that. But this, this covenant appears to be one of a promise of lifelong loyalty and commitment, binding two hearts together, committed to the same purpose. And most importantly, this covenant, over and over again, it tells us, was made before the face of the Lord. It was made in his presence, in his name, so to speak. And we're going to talk more about that later as we get to chapter 20. But this covenant was initiated by Jonathan, and that's what one would expect. We wouldn't expect David to go to Jonathan as the son of the king and ask him to make covenant. No, Jonathan initiated this. And yet the implications of what Jonathan wants to do in this covenant is not at all what we would expect. The implications become apparent in what happens next because here's the thing. When covenants are made, it's not unusual to have some sort of symbolic action done that would um, 
show the depth and the sincerity and the purpose of the covenant, to show what's being promised. So what Jonathan offers is utterly astounding because Jonathan gives to David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan gave to David all of his outward signs of prestige, all of his outward signs of position. He honored David with all that he was. It was as if he was saying, all that I am, I give to you. I covenant all of these things to you, everything that I am. Now, it is unlikely that at this time that Jonathan was aware that the one with whom he made covenant was God's chosen king. We're going to find that happening over our passage, but at this moment, it's unlikely that he, he knew that. However, what Jonathan does was symbolically transferring his own royal rights to David as a promise of his commitment to David forever. So, it, he, I want to tell you that there was great importance to what happened here because Jonathan showed David such encouragement and kindness and selfish love and it became more and more important because David is about to experience an enmity that will shake his world for many, many years to come. As one commentator writes, what Jonathan did would enter David's soul in a way that Saul's enmity never could. And isn't that true? I mean, that's true. When you belong to the Lord, love can enter your soul in a way that enmity never can. And that's what happened to David's soul here as he was bound to, to Jonathan in, um, in this covenant of love. This, this selfless promise would leave a deep and lasting mark on David's heart. And we'll, we'll see that as it goes as we go on. Okay, so we're going to come back to that covenant because what is so interesting in these passages is that covenant starts and covenant ends it. And in between, we have the enmity. So we have love, we have enmity, and we have love again. So let's go into this enmity that's going down. Okay, so David is going to have this experience that he was not prepared for. Nothing in his life had prepared him for the enmity he's about to experience. And what's interesting is in our passage, it all begins with a song. Well, that's not exactly true, but it was a song that awakened the giant of jealousy within Saul. Remember it. It was Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They were coming home from war and the Philistines had run for their lives after the giant had been struck down and then the Israelites chased them and they had a great defeat. Now the women are coming out to meet the men and they're coming home and they're just celebrating this great victory. But you see, when David was given greater glory in this than Saul, Saul became angry. Saul lost all joy. The importance of the victory of God's people was pushed far into the background and, he, and it was replaced with great anger. You know what that word means? That word great anger means to burn and be kindled with anger. It means here that a fire started raging in Saul's heart. And that 
that fire would not be quenched. It's interesting what we learn about Saul's heart here and in the rest of this passage. You see, the war, the victory, was not about God's glory. It wasn't about God's people. It was about Saul's glory. He was a glory thief. The fact that David had killed the giant, you see, that was great news to Saul. Saul was really happy until that song. Saul, Saul, as long as he could receive the glory, he was great. But now the people are giving David some of the glory, and that will never do. And the passage says that Saul eyed David from that day on. And the word here means that he watched David with suspicious jealousy from that day on. Everything David did was suspect. And that watching began to consume Saul's life. As we move on through the rest of chapter 18 and 19, we're going to see this playing out in all kinds of ways. And ever deepening jealousy in Saul's heart, it consumes him. It changes him. It empties him of of any purpose in life but this. Everything David does for Saul that we watch, we watch him playing the liar, we watch him going out in battle and fighting for the people and for the king, we watch all of these things, and everything was done with humility, and it was to bring honor, and it was to bring comfort to Saul, to do good for Saul. But Saul would have none of it because his heart became set on murder. At every point, the evil, however, that Saul plans is thwarted by the Lord. Isn't that the beautiful thing that we see? Because what is happening is that God is ruling. God is the true king. And here's what's going on. There's a war going on. It's a spiritual war. But it's happening, and it's playing out between these two men. It begins with Saul hurling that spear at David while David is playing the liar for Saul as he did day by day. This is the great warrior that is going on. This is the great warrior, and he's going in and he's playing the liar for Saul, and it calms Saul's spirit, at least for a while. And then we are told that Saul not only eyes David with jealousy, but he becomes afraid of David. The actual translation is, he became afraid of David's face. That's the actual translation. As I thought about that, I wondered, was what was it about David's face? Was it because that David showed peace in the midst of danger? Was it because he showed kindness in the midst of rage? Was he because he showed faithfulness in the midst of betrayal? We aren't told exactly what was going on, but we are told that it was God's spirit that was causing David to show forth something that Saul couldn't even stand to look at. And so Saul removed David from his presence, and he sent him out to war, surely hoping that David would die. But you know what then happens? God again thwarts Saul's plan, because by doing this very act, David is before the people. And again, we have this word here that says that he is with them face to face. He is not removed from them. You see, when he's sent out among the people, the people get to know David. He isn't removed. He isn't off somewhere like Saul is. He is with them face to face, and it says that the people loved David. And David had success in all of his undertakings because the Lord was with him. And this made Saul 
all the more fearful of David. And the more David becomes loved by everyone, by servants, by the people, by all, well, we're going to see, the more devious and careful Saul must be. You see, he can't outwardly try to do any harm to David because the people love him so much. They'll rebel against it. So what happens? First one daughter, then another daughter is promised in marriage, all with an eye to sending David out to be killed by the Philistines. The first promise is made void after David goes out and shows his his courage and, and strength in battle. He comes home and... The daughter is married off to someone else. But the second marriage, the second marriage takes place. But first of all, Saul requires a huge bride plot price. This is where it's really weird. But um, he requires 100 foreskins of the uncircumcised Philistines. Saul is certain that David will die in the process, that he will either die in circumcising, killing the Philistines and doing the circumcision, or he will die because it will make the Philistine army so angry that they will chase him down no matter what. Instead, David comes home with 200 foreskins. He marries Saul's daughter, and it says that she loved David. And we see later that she even helps David escape from Saul in his next attempt to murder. Now, before that happens, we do have one moment of a respite from Saul in his murderous rage. He's growing in desperation, and now it, he, he is, it's becoming Saul that he's going to be outwardly like this. And so he speaks to Jonathan, and he speaks to his servants, and he tries to get them to just go kill David. He says it out and out. So what does Jonathan do? Jonathan loves David. Jonathan has a covenant with David, and so he goes to warn David. And then he bravely goes to his father in David's defense. And he speaks well of David to Saul, saying, Do not sin against David, for his deeds have brought you good to you. He risked his life to kill the Philistine, and the Lord brought great salvation for all of Israel. And, Dad, you saw it, and you rejoiced. And Saul listened. He listened to his son, and momentarily he repented, but it wasn't a true repentance. But David, unbelievably, comes back and begins playing for Saul again. But again, Saul seeks to kill him by hurling a spear, and finally there is no place for David to go. And so he escapes to be with Samuel. Now, we don't have time to go into all of what happens there, But again, God is overcoming. He is thwarting Saul. Saul seeks David out there, and um, he sends messenger after messenger after messenger to get David back and bring him back so that he may be put to death. But each time, what we read is that each time the messengers go, they begin to fall down and begin prophesying. Finally, Saul decides, I'll do it myself. And he, too, is overcome by God's Spirit. One commentator says this about prophesying. He says it seems to have been an ecstatic state in which the men would speak with messages from God. In other words, that when you prophesy, when you are a prophet, you speak God's word, and then you speak the people's word back to God. And so what began to happen is that these these men began prophesying messages from God. We don't know what those messages were, but um, 
Perhaps they were speaking their own condemnation. We don't know what was going on. But whatever, we find that Saul, where we leave him, is stripped of, stripped naked of his robe, of his weapons. He's disarmed, he's disrobed, and he is speaking God's words, and he's overcome by God's goodness. And that's where we, we leave Saul. Finally, <clears throat> David returns to Jonathan and he returns to the safety of the covenant. It's interesting what unfolds in this passage because both David and Jonathan are putting their hope in the covenant that was made before the Lord. This is where they return for safety. We are reminded <clears throat> that because all of their promises were made here, all their promises were made before God that they can come in the safety of that covenant. Now, this is a, I mean, we could spend forever on this passage. It's very incredible. But I'm going to try to um, unfold it very briefly by dividing it into two parts. The first part is from David's perspective. As we have watched the drama unfold here in these three chapters, David has always been the receiver of the covenant blessings. In other words, it, it is that that's, Jonathan is, is always the one who is taking care of David, so to speak, because David has been the one with no standing, and he has been the one in great peril. But you see, the covenant has covered him with Jonathan's protection, Jonathan's intervention with Saul, Jonathan's warnings, Jonathan's generosity, and Jonathan's humility, and Jonathan's love. Now David is calling upon this covenant with Jonathan to protect him once more. And what he is asking will come to the very heart of what this covenant is about. Because David is asking Jonathan to make a choice. He is asking Jonathan to make a a choice between David and his father and between his inheritance and David's. Evidently, Saul has kept his recent attempts of murder from Jonathan's ears because Jonathan is surprised to hear when David comes and says, I am but a step from death. So now David reveals that to Jonathan, and he asks Jonathan to put everything he promised on the line. We aren't sure exactly what Jonathan understands, but... As you read the passage, you begin to understand that Jonathan knows a lot about who David is. And we don't know if it is because that David has revealed to him what happened, that Samuel had anointed him a king, or if God has revealed it to Jonathan's heart. But it seems likely that he knows that the person standing before him is the future king. But Jonathan assures David that all he has covenanted to be and to give to David, he will fulfill with love. The other part, then, of this chapter is Jonathan calling on David to remember the covenant. He's calling on the Lord to be witness. And Jonathan is looking with an eye to the future. David is looking here in the midst of this great enmity that he's facing and and his death threat. But Jonathan is looking with an eye to the future. And he is seeing beyond what David sees. Jonathan is asking for mercy. Jonathan knows the kingdom is not his, and it is not his father's, but it belongs to the Lord's king, David. He knows that when a new king arises, often the family of the past king is cut off. They're murdered so that none will seek revenge. And what Jonathan is asking of David, he's asking him to show 
Jonathan the steadfast love of the Lord and to show that to his house in the future. He is asking David to fulfill his part of the covenant. And then Jonathan says these two beautiful things. They're heartbreaking things as we come to the end of their time together. And they're signs of Jonathan's awareness of what is going to happen. He says to David, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, or as he was with my father. And in other words, what he is asking there is that may the Lord fill you with his spirit as his anointed king. And then he says beyond that, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And he's asking judgment on his own father in the midst of that. Jonathan has chosen faith over fear. He has chosen love over enmity. And he has chosen covenant over bloodline. He gives David his heart and he gives David all that he is, all that he has, all that he had symbolically promised him when the covenant was made. The next day is part of the long goodbye when they embrace and they wept. And it says David wept the most. And they spoke the peace of the covenant between them and their offspring forever. And it's interesting that because what is going to happen as we go forward is there's, there's no peace. There's still war. Saul is still chasing David. But there is the peace of the covenant. And that's what they're relying on. We love this story because it's beautiful and it's true, but it isn't the final story. The covenant made here wasn't able to make all things right. It wasn't able to stop war, nor enmity, nor hatred, nor sin, nor death, nor was it able to bring true peace. And it makes us long for more, more beauty, more love, true peace. It makes us long for God's sweet song, to ring and bring rest to our hearts. It makes us long for the perfect king, and it's meant to do so. It is meant to stir our hearts. It is meant to awaken us and drive us to the only covenant that is from everlasting to everlasting. There is a true king who stepped in front of us. There is a true king who took our place, who fought the battle, who suffered in our place. There is a true king who has fought all of our enemies, who has taken away our fear. There is a true king who kept the covenant for us, and we play no part in it. There is a true king who is faithful when we are unfaithful. There is a true king who has brought eternal peace with God. He has loved us when we were his enemies. He gave us his robe of righteousness and took our filthy rags. He has adopted us and prepared for us a kingdom that will never end. There is such a king. And my prayer is that we will grow in the courage that comes when you have such a king to walk before you. And when the spirit comes upon us. It is where we always need to go. For it is at that covenant, when we go to that covenant, that we can leave the shadow lands. That we can begin to see the true things. It is there that we see the cost and the blessing of covenant. It is when we go there that we understand that love comes by laying our lives down for one another and not by seeking our own. It is there at that covenant that we begin to see that sin never gives what it promises. It enslaves and it destroys, as we saw in Saul. 
It is there that we see what our hope is, that it's far above the glitter of this world and the passing things that charm us in this world. It is when we are looking at that covenant and the one who stands there with his wounds, it is there that we know that we can enter the throne room of grace and find help in time of need, that we can go with our requests and know that they are heard. It is because of that covenant that we are covered, the covenant that the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts forever. And it is there that we can lay all of our burdens down. It is there because of that covenant that we find the one who stepped in front of us and fought the war in our place. And it therefore enables us to go forward as different people. We have courage. We have one that we can follow. We have one who helps us to see what the true things are, what love really means, what life really means. And David and Jonathan's covenant helps us to see that. Let me pray. Father, um, your word is so amazing, and we thank you for the privilege of being in this country and being able to study your word and to talk with one another about it and to join hands and say yes. That covenant between David and Jonathan can reflect in our lives because we have the eternal covenant that binds us together. We give you praise and thanksgiving. You are a glorious Lord, and we give you thanks that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. In Christ's name, amen.